Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Thank you so much for making a commitment to learning and joining us again this week. I'm your host, Jordan Porter, joined by the fabulous Yvonne Brandenburg, and still, hey, still joined by Ed Durham, um, our CVT, LATG, VTS, and cardiology for our cardiology series. Whoop, whoop. So Hello, excited. Everyone. So this is the third, third episode. Yeah. Yes. Third episode in the series. So if you haven't listened to the first two, which was really kind of a part one, part two, definitely, definitely listen to those because today we, we created this episode as a result of those two episodes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, thanks. Cause we're learning that there's like a lot to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So, which is pretty great. So we're doing cardiovascular physical exam. Um, because for me, I know we kind of talked about it a little bit last week where it's just like, I want to know what questions I need to be asking when we see our patients. So, um, when we see your patients suspected of heart disease, I guess. Um, so Ed's gonna, Ed's gonna educate. Well, I'm certainly hope, hoping that I can. Uh, definitely. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> I think it's, I think before we start this too, it's really important to remember that as a technician, this is a hundred percent part of your job. So don't think that just because you're a technician, you aren't doing physical exams because I know there's, I've seen the Facebook posts in different groups where it's like, Oh, nobody in my, my practice even has a stethoscope. And, um, you definitely should have a stethoscope or at least have access to one and feel comfortable doing physical exams. And, you know, if a doctor writes something in the medical record and, and you can like look at the patient and listen, or, you know, look at them and just see what it is that they're seeing. So this is definitely tech job. This is not just a doctor job. There's nothing in the practice act that says a technician cannot do a physical exam. So that's my, and that's my soapbox for a second. <laughs> I will 110% support that statement. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is really fun because we were talking in the last two episodes about doing some of the physical exams specifically geared towards cardiovascular. And it's, I think it's one of those things where, yes, it is a little bit more advanced than your standard physical exam, but this is stuff that we should all be looking for and, and monitoring. So it's, it'll be fun to hear the cardio side of the physical exam. So um, where, where would you like to start? And what, what do you think well, is a good place to like start? We start at the nose, right? Well, <laughs> yes and no. So I'm, I, I don't object to anything you said, and I, but I don't know that I would characterize this as a more advanced physical exam. I'm just going to characterize it as we're going to take the physical exam skills that the audience as technicians already possess Mm -hmm. and make them better. Because there's nothing in here that is, that is, you know, highly technically challenging or you need a DVM to 
be able to appreciate. Like this is really accessible information for tech technicians. So yeah, that's actually yeah, a really I, good point. I completely I agree with everything you said. Um, actually, oddly enough, the best place to begin with the physical exam is not actually touching the patient. Mm. So when I actually start looking at the, the patients, and I do this for every patient, it just happens most of mine are are cardiovascular in nature because that's the area I've chosen to go into. Really, <laughs> this is for everybody. So I start by looking at the patient kind of just being the patient. And it's a really great time to observe things like their breathing, right? Because when we start handling them, it changes their stress level and mm -hmm. their respiratory rate will often go up. But if you walk into the room and just start talking to the client and then kind of pay attention to what the patient is doing, you can get a lot of information before you even ever lay hands on, on the dog or the cat. Yeah. Um, probably the, the most noticeable thing will be the respiratory pattern and re respiratory rate. You know, normally small animals have a pretty low re respiratory rate. Generally in a hospital, we'll say somewhere between 18 and, and 30, right? Because they're a little bit stressed out. At home, it's more like eight to 20, right? When mm -hmm. they're asleep and they're relaxed and everything, like their res our res respiratory rates are pretty darn low. Um, but this is a really good time to observe that and to count the rest respiratory rate before you start doing things with them. But mm. think about how many times you pick up a patient and they're sniffing. And you're like, oh, right. I can't count the rest <laughs> respiratory rate. The other thing that happens is if they're panting and you don't touch them for a few minutes, a lot of dogs will lay down and then they'll stop panting and you can get a res respiratory rate on before you ever even lay hands on them. So yeah. that's a, that's a very useful tip. Um, I am going to back up slightly for people who may not have caught this in the last podcast was the idea of how useful the physical exam is. Mm -hmm. I feel like that as technology has advanced and I saw this with the vet veterinary students, they would often just want to do tests, right? We have all this technology and we, you know, why should I bother learning all these things? I can just do a test. Well, the, the cardiovascular system, perhaps more than any other system with the possible exception of the neurological system really lends itself well to telling us what's wrong with it based on physical exam findings. And mm -hmm. a good cardiologist, a good diagnostician, and it doesn't have to be a cardiologist, can actually get about 90 to 95% of the way to the correct diagnosis and assessment just based on the physical exam and then marrying that with the history. So I don't think we can get away from the importance of a good physical exam just because we have a lot of good tech. Yeah, and that's a really, really valid point. Um, and that's, that's to go along with, if you're working in a general practice and you don't have an ultrasound or you don't have a pro BNP or you don't have you know all these other things, Remember that what Ed's saying is doing your physical exam, looking at the patient, getting that history, 
you can do that. You don't, you, you don't have do to work that. in a specialty clinic. And so. if you work in some place like Florida, where we have a lot of thunderstorms and the power goes out, I can still do a physical exam. <laughs> yeah. That's so uh, true. All, all I need is some light. I, I can still do a physical exam. I think that's valuable to, as like a technician or as a client service representative too. like when you have those clients who call and they're like, well, I know my dog's having, has a UTI. Can I just get antibiotics? Like, no, like we need to lay hands on your dog and just make sure like rule yeah. out other things. Like we can't just, you know, like, well, I was just there Absolutely. three months ago, you know? And it's like, it's not the same. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I, I can recall a, a incident in the clinic years ago where a um, client called in and said that her cat was having kittens and one was stuck in the birth canal. And the veterinarian said, well, you know, you can gently pull them out and they'll, you, you can often get them out. And so two hours later, the lady shows up going, I can't get this kitten out. And sure enough, it was because it was a prolapsed uterus. So you know, you can't tell over the phone, you know, you can't assume that clients yeah. know what they're talking about. And you can't assume clients don't know what they're talk talking about. So until we lay hands and eyes on them, it, it's your, your point is extremely valid. Anyway, yeah. so um, back to just observing your pet. So I always start with a hands-off and I'm looking for um, distressed breathing, um, orth orthopnea, things like that, that are really going to help me tell if my patient's got some sort of, of problem. Um, and the cool thing is that the difference in inspiratory dyspnea and expiratory dyspnea can actually give you some clues as to what actually might be going on mm -hmm. with the patient. So that's pretty cool. Like if they're having trouble inhaling, so they have inspiratory dyspnea, that's more commonly associated with upper air, airway disorders. And you get, you know, the Strider's dog coming in and he's got that, that, you know, LARPAR sound to him that <laughs> most people will rec recognize. Okay, that's an inspiratory dyspnea. The expiratory dyspnea is more like things we see with congestive heart failure and disease of the of the lung tissue the parenchyma itself and so that kind of gives us a clue to what's going on and then you have the orthopnea where the pet will sit with their elbows pointed outward you know they'll be abducted so that they can open mm -hmm. their chest cavity up and breathe better um and, that's and they might the stretch their neck out right, and just right. like they stretch their head out they're just trying to get as much spaces they possibly can to get right. in there Trying yeah. to open up that chest cavity so they can breathe better um and you see that with cats particularly with pearl effusion they'll stretch their head oh, out trying yeah. to open up that that thoracic cavity there's a subtle <sighs> there's a subtle part of orth orthopnea that we touched on last week um that involves the pet not being able to sleep and oh right yeah that positional I can't seem to find a position where I can breathe comfortably when I'm laying down. And that's a historical thing that you can get when you talk, talk to the clients. And so one of the things we always ask is, is your pet sleep, sleeping through the night? Mm. And if they say, no, he's up, up and down all night and he coughs more at night. Well, that's a form of orth orthopnea because without mm. activity during the day, 
the muscles don't help return blood back to the heart and they develop more pulmonary edema. So hmm. that hands-off evaluation is extremely useful. And then, you know, then you get to play with, with the an animals, which is always <laughs> fun. Um, yeah, and um, it's, it's interesting because once you've seen orthopnea, like it's, it's so, it's so distinct when you've seen it, you're like, oh, that's what we're talking about. Um, and I, I hate seeing it because I always feel so bad for these patients. So, well, you know, and I think everybody's experience where you feel like you can't breathe and, you know, mm -hmm. the sensation of shortness of breath is, is really scary. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, if you were to be all technical Pets don't have true dyspnea because dyspnea is defined as the sensation of feeling like you can't breathe. And since they can't mm. tell us that they can't breathe, we just anthropomorphize it onto them and say, oh, he's dyspneic. We're going <laughs> to you know? we're going to call this uh, difficulty breathing for you. It's fine. Right. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But for the most part, yeah, we, we all know what, what we mean when we say dyspnea. Interesting. Yeah, it's this one. I love when you can do those fun technical things. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like pets don't have symptoms, they have signs because they can't tell us what's what's wrong with them. It's like yep. one of the dumb, the dumb things that I learned over the years. Clinical signs. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so then we move on to the actual hands-on of the of the patient. And uh, I again I think you mentioned this before is always do things in the same order. Mm -hmm. um, some people will start at the head and work their way to the tail. Some people will start at the tail and work their way to the head. I'm happy whatever makes you mm -hmm. happy. That's the way you, you should do it. Um, but I always start with looking at the oral mucosa and checking their, their color. Uh, pink is good. White is bad. Blue is bad. <laughs> red is not great. Um, and one of the things that is a subtle finding, and you see this, I, I see this a lot because we had a lot of, um, small dogs that mm. have collapsing trachea <laughs> right. and they will get distressed and they will, you'll look at their tongue and it'll be cyanotic. It'll be, be blue Yeah. and you kind of panic and you're like, oh my gosh. But if you lift up their gums and look at their actual uh, gum mu mucosa, it'll still be pink. And yeah. what's happening is they're stressing their larynx and their pharynx so much that they actually sort of uh, occlude blood flow in, in their tongue oh. and it turns pur purple. Yeah, I've, I've seen that a lot with these, like the Yorkies that get collapsing <laughs> trachea that are real stressed out. So I've learned to always check their, their gums. Don't just go off of the tongue because sometimes be mis misleading about that. Um, then there's, you know, I think this is pretty common for technicians to look at gums and to look at capillary refill time. Mm. Um, the anesthesiologists I worked with were real big about that you should actually look at the time of the cap capillary refill time. Don't just default to, oh, it's le less than two seconds. Because in a situation of shock, they can actually be hyper fast. So less than one second mm. could be 
body trying to to perfuse that's not doing very well. Um, so there's times when I'll actually note it was about one second or it was two two seconds. Normal being less than two seconds, but if it's hyper fast, that that might not be nor normal either. Mm. So I think that's something to to look at. Um, and the other thing, of course, is you get peripheral vasoconstriction with shock and hy hypothermia as the body tries to to keep the very important heart, kidneys, brain ha happy and <laughs> shunt blood away from the periphery to the cent central system. So that's going to affect your capillary refill time. One of my favorite things, which is really rare, but it's really fun, is what we call differential cyanosis. And hmm. this is where you're, you have a patient that has what most people refer to as the reversed PDA. So um, if you think about fetal blood flow, you have the patent or you have the ductus arteriosus in the fetus that shunts blood away from the lungs. And mm -hmm. that's supposed to close up at birth. And if it doesn't, you have patent ductus arteriosus. And everybody's like, oh, cool. Yeah, patent ductus arteriosus. It's got a really cool murmur, um, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a version of that where instead of the blood shunting from the aorta into the pulmonary artery, um, you have pulmonary hypertension and blood shunts from the pulmonary artery into the aorta. So now you have deoxygenated blood mixing with aortic flow and mm. the level of the aorta where it mixes is actually in the descending aorta. So all the blood leaving the left ventricle and aorta that goes to the head is normal oxygenated blood. So their, mm. their gums will be pink, but the blood going downstream to the tail end will be cyanotic. And so you'll hmm. look at these dogs and they'll be cyanotic down in the, the tail area, pick whatever orifice you wanna look at, mm -hmm. um, but they'll be pink up at, at the head. And that's a very unique finding to this reversed PDA. Oh, interesting. Yeah, do it's, you just, know, it's just cool. Do you know if like, I'm, I'm guessing you would probably see a decrease in the SPO2 then? in the caudal versus absolutely. cranial? Absolutely. Absolutely. Huh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, because you're you have a mixing of deoxygenated blood in there, so you're going to lower the oxygen con concentration. That's it may cool. not always be measurable, but it right. certainly can, can be, yeah. Hmm. Super cool. It is. I think it's very cool. Dorkiness um, over here. It's fine. <laughs> right. That's what we're all about. That's why we love what what we do. Yeah. Um I always look at jug jugular veins. So when you have distended jugular veins, it is a sign of elevated right-sided pressures, um, right-sided meaning you know, right atrium, right vent ventricle. And it's not uncommon to see little pulses in the jug jugular vein. So if you, you know, imagine a dog standing in sort of classic position, standing with its head held horizontal to the ground at, at, at normal posture. If you see jug, jugular pulses in the, the lower third of the neck, that's fine. Who cares? That's completely normal. If mm -hmm. those pulses actually extend up the neck, then you can imply that there are high-sided right atrial pressure, and you've got some tricuspid regurgitation that is causing this 
pulse wave to go back up the jug jugular veins. Oh, wow. Okay. The cardiologist, we have a, a really cool test that, that we do. Um, and it's particularly useful on dogs with pericardial effusion. So those of you who have emergency practice, so there's a test called the hepatojugular reflux. It's R-E-F-L-U-X test. And what you do is you visualize the jug jugular veins and then you have someone gently, emphasis on gently, lift on the cranial abdomen and you kind of put pressure gently on the liver. And what happens is it displaces blood forward in the caudal vena cava. And when it does, that blood will run up to the right atrium. And if you have cardiac tamponade, the right atrium won't be able to accept that blood like it would in a normal patient. And you'll see a wave distend the jugular vein up to the level of, uh, of the jaw. And then oh, as wow. the, yeah, it's a really cool feature. I, I have a great vi video of it. Um, yeah. And it's just a little... This is a little thing we we do to say, yep, there's elevated right atrial pressures here. Oh wow! So we look at veins. Um, obviously, we're going to pal palpate for pulses, right? Um, again, we I think we mentioned this last week that arterial pulses are not useful for assessing blood pressure if they're weak then you can mm. guess that potentially there is some uh, low pressure, but you can also be hypotensive and have a normal feeling pulse. So you really, if you wanna know blood pressure, then you have to actually measure blood pressure. But a knowing that they have a pulse is very useful, particularly for our cats that come in with suspected aortic thromboembolism, um, a Hyperdynamic or a bounding pulse is associated with things like patent duxus arteriosus again, because you have a widened pulse pressure, the difference between systolic pressure and, and diastolic pressure. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's always cool and fun. And then there's um, what's known as pulse de deficits. So if I'm feeling pulses and I have a re regular rhythm and suddenly it stops and then they come back again, then potentially I have an arrhythmia. So I'm gonna grab my stethoscope and put it on the heart. Usually I'll do I'll palpate pulses while I'm listening to heart. So if I'm listening and I'm palpating and I hear lub dub, lub dub, lub, and then I'm feeling pulses and I get pulse, pulse, skip, pulse, pulse. Well, that pulse deficit is associated with um, potentially arrhythmias. So a lot of things we can learn from just feeling the pulses, but blood pressure is not one of them. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I like it. So I think it's a really good idea to escalt and feel pulses at, at the same, same time. Mm -hmm. um, then kind of from there, I will move on to the auscultation um, because the, you know, the heart is neck, next in line. And, and obviously this is where a huge part of your physical exam comes in. And so I have a question for you guys. When you're listening to your patients, where do you listen? 
it's funny. I, I had to think about this when we were talking about it last, last week. Um, and I think for me, I'm typically on the left side of the chest. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of, I don't know if I could tell you exactly where, but I will usually kind of feel the heartbeat and then left side, that's where I put my stethoscope. That's like where I start. Yeah, and then I kind I of move too. around from there. I start but I'm kind not of like sure that I can armpit. like, yeah, I'm not sure I can actually like verbalize <laughs> what I do, which is bad, but that's where I go. And Jordan? Yeah, I think like I start like, I start on the left side, like up in the armpit and then I just kind of move down and then I'll move over to the right side, but I don't have like a set. It's just become like a, a rhythm for me. I don't have a set reason as to why I do it. <laughs> That's okay. You have a system. It yeah. works for you. So we'll, we'll see if we see, this is exactly what I mean. This is not a more advanced skill. This is just fine tuning the skills that people already possess. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, when I start my auscultation, I start it much like I'm going to start my physical exam. I start with my physical exam. I have my eyes or my hands off the patient. When I start my auscultation, I don't start with my stethoscope. I actually start with my hands. And so the um, way I do this is I will lay both hands on either side of the chest and I will palpate for the heart heartbeat. Ordinarily, it should be strongest on the left. Um, and that place you feel, you probably have heard people refer to as the point of max- maximal intensity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's yeah. actually not the correct name for it. So hmm. that is actually what we call the apical impulse or the apex beat. That's where you feel the heart beating on the chest, chest wall. Um, the PMI or point of maximum intensity is a term we use to describe where we hear the murmur the loudest. Hmm. And this uh-huh. is a confusion in terms that is pretty much industry-wide. So I'm on a personal mission to change that. <laughs> so apical impulse is where you feel the heart beating on the chest. PMI is where you hear the murmur the loud, loudest, point of max, maximal intensity. And honestly, yeah. that actually just makes sense. It does. Because, because you want to know where the point of maximal intensity is for murmur, because that tells you a ton about the murmur. Yeah, it certainly yeah it narrows the options for, for sure. Um, so ordinarily you're going to feel the apical impulse on the left side of the chest, somewhere in the fifth to sixth intercostal space, depending on the size and shape of, of the dog. Um, and that would be normal. But if I feel the apex beat stronger on the right, well, then I, I know right away that something is amiss. Either there's a space occupying mass that shifted the heart over. Maybe there's um, a lot of right ventricular hypertrophy, but right away I've got a clue that something is not wrong or something is not right. The other thing that I'm feeling for is what is termed a palpable thrill. And Mm. so the thrill is, if you think about, a murmur, it is 
turbulence, which creates vib vibrations, right? Because all sound is a vi vibration. It's just that a thrill is a murmur that it's so intense. You can feel the vibration of the turbulent blood, blood flow. Yeah. And this is actually a very important feature. When we get to talking about murmur grades, this becomes very, very useful to us. So I'm going to be feeling for that palpable thrill. And mm. it's funny as we, there's, when I worked with some people that we sort of made a unofficial grading system for the thrills um, <laughs> that was based on the old school Dis Disneyland rides. So back in the day before you two were born, for sure, when you went to Disneyland, you had to buy tickets based on how exciting the ride was. And an A ticket was the little kitty car that just oh, kind of nice. goes over little lumps. And an e-ticket was the Matterhorn. <laughs> and so I love it. So we jokingly started saying that's that's an e-ticket e thrill. That's oh. eh, not much. That's not much of a thrill. That's an A-ticket thrill. Oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> All really unofficial, but I kind of like it. Um so then I'll actually grab my steth stethoscope and start listening. And we did talk about stethoscopes some in the previous ep episodes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we won't belabor the point here, but suffice it to say that you get what you pay, pay for. Mm -hmm. If you pay for a crummy stethoscope, you're going to get a crummy steth stethoscope and you're not going to have really good acoustics with it. Um, the things that make a stethoscope good are relatively short tubing. So the whole thing should be like 25 inches or, or so. Um, double tubing. And if you feel the really nice Litmans, if you roll it between your fingers, you'll feel there's a septum inside of that, that tubing. So it's actually du double tubing that is extruded as one tube. Mm. A nice firm diaphragm that can pick up the acoustics. I like to have a separate bell side for hearing the gallops with and um, a, a diaphragm that is appropriately sized to your patient. So mm -hmm. if you look at a stethoscope, the, what we think of as the big diaphragm, that's designed for human adults. So if I have a patient that's a Irish wolfhound or a Great Dane or a horse, I'm going to use my big diaphragm. If I have a patient that's more the size of a child, I'm going to use my diaphragm that's smaller, the quote unquote pediatric one that's about an inch across. And then if I have a puppy or kitten, they do make a neonatal, which is about three quarters of an inch across. Uh, as far as I know, Littman's the only one who makes one. I'm sure there's someone else out there, but that's the one that um, I've seen in the past. And so I think appropriately sizing your diaphragm to the patient is very useful. It helps you isolate the valve areas better. Um, so when you go to listen, what most people think of is the valve areas. And so on the left side of the chest, the left hem hemithorax, the valve areas that you can hear the best are the mitral valve, the aortic valve, and the pulmonic valve. Where you feel that apical impulse on the left is right the area where mitral valve murmurs are heard the best. So it's mm. it's close to the sternum on the left side, right where you feel the heartbeat. 
um, that's where your your mitral murmurs are best going to be heard. If you move your stethoscope cranial and dorsal from there, about one intercostal space, then you're going to be over the aortic valve. Um, cool feature of this is if you're listening to a normal dog and you're over the mitral valve area, the first heart sound, the lub of the lub dub S1 will be louder. So you'll get lub dub, or sorry, let me do, do, do that again. Lub dub, lub dub, lub mm. dub. If you move your stethoscope up toward the base of the heart where the aortic valve is, then the second heart sound gets louder. So it's lub dub, lub dub, lub dub. And that's a kind of clue you can tell, oh yes, I'm actually up over the aortic valve, goody for me. So that's always fun. That's actually um, like a really good tip because I feel like I listen, but like I don't know how to tell if I'm listening in the right spot. <laughs> like, well, and that's a very useful way to be able to tell. Yeah. Um, from there, you're going to go cranial and ventral about an intercostal space to half an intercostal space, depending on the size of the patient. And that, that's going to be where the pulmonic valve is. Now, for a small patient, it's hard to dif differentiate aortic and pulmonic because they are anatomically literally in the same spot. I mean, they're right on top, top of each other. In a large dog, the heart's bigger, so they're a little further apart. So you can kind of get a sense of aortic versus pul pulmonic. Um, and then from there, so that's your MAP. Some people call it PAM, P-A-M, pulmonic, aortic, mitral going from cranial to dorsal because I start at the mitral area where I feel the apex beat. For me, I do MAP, mitral, aortic, pul pulmonic. And then mm. from there, particularly in puppies and, and things that I might suspect a PDA in, I always listen really cranial and really um, dorsal in the armpit where the great vessels actually cross because that's where the PDAs live. And there's a, next time you get a P PDA in, you can try this. If you listen over the mitral valve, then you'll hear a loud systolic murmur, but nothing else. And then as you move that stethoscope cranial and dorsal, you'll hear the diastolic murmur come in. So you get this uh -huh. sort of, and as you move up, it goes. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. And then you move back down, goes and change again. Yeah. So that's that's always fun. I'm like, um, I'm like trying to remember. I'm like, yes, I've heard that. <laughs> so I, I think that before I go, well, let me finish where I am. So then the next spot I'm gonna listen to is if I feel for that left apical impulse again and I go straight through the chest wall to the right side and put my stethoscope on there. So directly opposite of the apical impulse, that's where murmurs of tricuspid regurgitation are be best heard. And the challenge is that tricuspid regurgitation and mitral regurgitation sound so much alike that it's difficult to tell the difference between the two. So you're not sure if what you're hearing is true tricuspid regurg or whether it's just a mitral regurg radiating over. And that's okay, mm. that's, that's, that's common, it happens to everybody. Um, from there, 
I will move my stethoscope cranial and dorsal again up to the right heart base where murmurs of VSD are often best heard. Now, that being said, murmurs of VSD can kind of be anywhere on the right because sometimes they go straight across. Sometimes they angle down toward the right ventricular apex and that might be a little more caudal. Um, but typically the difference between uh, a VSD, ventricular septal defect and tricuspid regurgitation is that the VSD will be super loud. Hmm. Hmm. Um, nice. Yeah. So one of the things that I didn't mention is to make your auscultation better, you have to focus on what you're listening to. You have to drown out all the other noise. Listening, doing a good auscultation in a busy ICU is virtually impossible. It's just too mm -hmm. loud. Yeah. There's just the subtle sounds are going to get drowned out by the rest of the noise in, in the room. And you're not going to be able to hear really soft things. So if I have a patient that's in the ICU, if I can, I will try to move them someplace more quiet to do my initial evaluation. Um, if I'm just, you know, mo monitoring them, that's completely different. But if I need to do a good auscultation, I need a quiet room. Right. The other thing you have to do is you have to really focus. Like you have to mentally shut out everything else for those moments and really listen, okay, where's my love? Where's my dub? Okay, I found my love, my dub, my love, my dub. Now, what else do I hear? Oh, I hear love, shh, dub, love, shh, dub. Okay, that's a systolic murmur. It's mm. between the love and the dub. So that's very, very important. The other thing that's very, very important that people forget is your ear canals run towards your nose. <laughs> so you have to angle your ear pieces forward. Uh, no kidding. That is the thing on, in photos, like photo stock photos or TV shows. I'm like, yeah, no, you don't know how to use a stethoscope. Stop it. <laughs> right. Exactly. You would think with like earbuds at this point, people get it because it points. Yeah, far. but I don't think they really <laughs> pay attention. No, I was going to say, I know that for like, if, if people, and I don't know if you send people to this website, but, um, Littman makes a great, uh, little library of sounds. Um, and we'll put this in the notes for you guys to listen, where you could hear some of these different murmurs that, that Ed mentions, because it's, it's one thing to talk about them. It's totally different to actually hear them the first time and it be labeled what it is. Um, so definitely we'll, we'll put that in the notes. It's I've used it before when I was studying about the, the different murmurs and it's really cool to hear them. And then you, you can like start putting like the sounds with the words <laughs> and knowing what things sound like. So I think, I think I actually have a, a, a recording actually somewhere. I think I have a, a vinyl LP of heart sounds. Nice. Like I'm I know old I, school. I, I have a CD somewhere. I don't know where it is, but yeah. I do not have um, vinyl. <laughs> but, but I will I will say that what I've figured out over time is that yes, those sites are helpful, but if you were to close your eyes and listen, you would realize that most of the murmurs sound an awful lot alike. Yeah. Right. The yes. sound of turbulent blood flow is the sound of turbulent blood flow. So then mm -hmm. the question becomes. Well, how do you differentiate? How do you know? Well, the location. primary way we know is location. 
where do I hear it? Am I hearing it over the mitral valve area? Because if I am, that's the only valve that lives there. And if it's a murmur at the left apex, it's mitral regurgitation until proven otherwise. This is why the, the phrase PMI, point of maximal intensity, is important when it comes to murmurs. It's See? so important. We're putting it all together, guys. It's cool. <laughs> it's so important for just that reason, because now I've narrowed it down. This dog likely has mitral regurgitation. Could he have something else going on? Sure, I haven't finished li listening yet. I've only li listened to the to the mit mitral valve area. Mm -hmm. um, when I get to the left base, up where the aortic and pulmonic valve are. Okay, well, if the murmur is loudest there, then I'm gonna be thinking things like pulmonic stenosis, aortic stenosis, potentially a fun functional murmur. Um, because those are all where those murmurs occur. If it's a murmur on the right side and it's really loud and potentially has a thrill, well, it's probably gonna be a VSD because we know that that's a loud murmur on, on the right. So they do have slightly different sounds and it takes years of practice to differentiate what's known as a plateau murmur from a crescendo murmur, from a decrescendo murmur, from a diamond murmur. What's probably Ooh. easy, right, exactly. Fancy. <laughs> right, so you'll hear cardiologists talk about ejection quality murmurs. So the different, mm. if I can do this, and I think this is how I'm gonna start doing all, all my heart sounds. So if you listen to mitral regurgitation, it has a plateau shape to it. If you were to draw out the, the vibrations. So it's mm. the same intensity at the beginning as it is at the end. So, okay. yeah where an ejection quality murmur often gets um, crescendos or decrescendos during the, car the course of the murmur. So it goes, mm. it gets louder. And so we, we do kind of talk about those qualities of the heart sounds, but again, that's tough. Like you gotta listen to a lot of dogs to be able to say, okay, that's a plateau shaped murmur. That's a that's a decrescendo de de murmur, right? So, um, where you hear it actually has the most to do with it, and then timing. So, mm. right. So we when you're characterizing murmur, guys, there's three things you do. You talk about the location, you talk about the timing, and you talk about grade. So we've talked about the lo location. Where do I hear it the loudest? Um, the timing, there's really three timings in cardiology auscultation. There's systolic, there's diastolic, and there's continuance, right? Ah. So systolic is a murmur that occurs between lub and dub. A diastolic murmur is the murmur that occurs between dub and the next lub. So lub, mm. dub, shh, lub, dub, shh, lub, dub, shh. Those are very rare. You don't hear them very often in small animal medicine. For anybody who does horses, you might hear them in horses. It's actually a physiological murmur in horses. Hmm. Um, and then you have the continuous murmur. That's through the entire cardiac cycle, right? We did that earlier. Oh, yeah. Right? So that's continuous murmur. So those are really the big three timings that you have to, have to worry about. And there's a really weird one. Right? You so it's the so-called to and fro, 
which is simply a systolic and diastolic murmur in the same patient. Maybe from the same valve, maybe from two diff different valves. You don't know until, until you do the echo. And the difference there is it sounds more like somebody sawing wood. So it's like, ah. as opposed to, so like there's sense? a break in between. There's a break. Versus... Like you, can, you can imagine a change in direction. Yeah. Exactly. Huh. So that's like dog's got tricuspid regurgitation and really bad pulmonary hypertension. He's got really loud pulmonic insufficiency. I've seen that in dogs, heartworm disease. So oh yeah. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing we're talk, talking about. So you people in the South that have heartworm disease, you'd hear it. <laughs> I should re-listen to Pua, I guess. <laughs> Maybe. I know, right? So <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't really see. Again, <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, just to give you an idea of how rare diastolic murmurs are. When I was at the University of Missouri and we would hear one, we would take the dog all around the hospital, finding yeah. every student we could to listen to it because you may never hear this again. Yeah. You know, I, I believe I do remember that patient that my cardiologist was like, you should listen to this dog. And I was like, really? And he's like, you'll probably never hear it again. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. So those are the, the timing. Okay. And then we get into grade. And I think most people have a pretty good sense of grade here. So yeah. um, I'll go through it. It's probably the quickly. easiest thing to like learn. It really is. <laughs> and I think, I think the thing you have to remember about grading is that it's subjective, right? Yeah. If you call it a two and I call it a three, who cares? If you call it a two and I call it a five, one of us is way off. Yeah. Well, right? and I think there's also... It, it is dynamic sometimes, right? Well, so absolutely. It could have and, been a four or five it, and now it's not. So it's, it, you yeah, know. They absolutely change. So a grade one murmur is a murmur that is so soft, it takes an experienced listener several minutes to find under ideal conditions, right? So that's a murmur that like me and the cardiologist can hear in a quiet room with the dog being perp perfectly still and no panting and it's right. so soft that we're like okay there's a grade one murmur so a grade two murmur is a soft murmur that is localized into one pmi mm. and you can hear it in one spot if you move off that spot you don't hear it a grade three murmur is a murmur that you can easily hear but you can localize it to one spot and yet still hear it in other lo locations. So mm. it's the loudest at the mitral valve, but I can hear it a little bit on the right side and I can hear it a little bit at the left, left base. So that's a three. Mul multiple valve areas, let's say. A four is a murmur that's loud enough that you kind of wonder where the PMI is. Mm. So it's a obvious murmur it's a loud loud murmur you can't say is it loudest at the left apex is it loudest at the left base i'm not really sure because it's loud everywhere and then a five is a loud murmur that you can actually palpate a thrill so you can feel the vibration so that goes back to starting with my hands on the chest 
if I palpate a thrill, I know this patient automatically has at least a grade five murmur without even putting my stethoscope on. Right. Okay. And then a six is a five that's so loud. If you lift, lift your stethoscope about a centimeter off the chest, you can hear the murmur still radiating outside of the body. And the caveat to that ah. is you can't touch the chest. You can't put your fingers on the chest and then hold your stethoscope head because the sound will radiate through your fingers. You have mm. to literally have an air gap. Um, sometimes my cardiologist will just put her ear down there. And if she can hear it without her stethoscope, then, then she'll call it a six. Wow. Okay. And, you know, what's the difference between a five, five and a six? It's academic. It's a lot. <laughs> right. So that all being said, I think it's important to emphasize the fact that the loudness of the murmur does not correlate with severity of disease, meaning you can have mm -hmm. a really loud murmur and still have a heart that is normal size and function, or you can have a really loud murmur and a heart that is really crappy. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, it's not uncommon to have Dobermans that have really bad DCM, but only have like grade two or three murmur because the heart just can't generate enough force to make a loud murmur. Mm. So it's, you can't just say, oh, it's a soft murmur. It's probably nothing. Oh, it's a loud murmur. It's probably really bad. I actually remember a Sheltie one time that the murmur was so loud, you could hear it sitting across the room from the dog. It was a really high pitched squeak. Ooh. Yeah, it was just like the perfect frequency to make this beep, beep sort of sound that you could hear with a dog just sitting on the table in front, front of you. No stethoscope. That's so you crazy. just put your ear down there. That's why the lady brought brought him in. It's like he's like my on? dog chewed a squeaky toy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she just had the tiniest little bit of mitral regurgitation that, when the heart contracted, made just the right frequency of noise to make a musical note. Dang. And you could hear it heart was otherwise normal size and fun function. So Crazy. loudness of murmur does not equal bad heart, heart disease. I think I mentioned this before that in the case of a ventricular septal defect, the softer the murmur, the worse the heart, heart disease is, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. the, it means the chambers are starting to e equalize in pressure. So that's, that's a bad day. Yes. Um, then there's other sounds that you can hear that are a little more challenging. So people always talk about the, the gallop rhythm or the gallop mm -hmm. sounds. So I just need to clarify first off that gallop rhythm, it's not really a rhythm that you think of like an ECG rhythm. It's just a sound that sounds like a galloping horse. So mm. it got stuck with gallop rhythm, but it's actually a gallop sound. And that is mm. a sound associated with a stiff ben ventricle that's trying to fill and it suddenly stops. And so these are really soft sounds. They're very dif difficult to hear in most, most patients. Um, the most likely place you're gonna hear one is in cats. Mm -hmm. And it's tough because their heart, heart rates are fast, but you get this sort of rolling sound. So instead of love dub, love dub, love dub, you get love dub dub, and but you may or may not hear a murmur with it um that's where the bell comes in the bell is better for hearing these 
sounds because they're low freak, frequency. Mm. Odd, oddly enough, when the stethoscope was invented, there was a real battle between the people trying to, to develop it as to whether a diaphragm was better or whether the bell was better. <laughs> and they finally, after a hundred years of uh, research, decided that they were better for different things. Mm. So that's that why, makes sense. why stethoscopes have both. <laughs> Um, and then there's a thing that you may hear called a, a um, click, a systolic click. And that is the sound of a, usually an AV valve. So the mitral or tricuspid valve prolapsing, but not leaking during systole. Mm. So what you get is lump clicked up, lump clicked up, lump clicked up. And a lot of people want to call that a gallop. But if you really stop and listen to the lub and the dub, you realize that the click comes between the lub and the dub, where a gallop will come after or before the lub and the dub. So a gallop is going to be lub dub uh, or belub dub, belub dub, where the click is going to be lub click dub, lub click dub. And it kind of yeah. sounds like that. It does that, 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 that. Um, and it's weird because they'll go away and come back just with phase of ventilation. Huh. Like you'll hear it at some times and then it'll go away and then it'll come back and it'll go away and come back. Interesting. And that's a dog that's probably going to go on and develop a mitral valve murmur later on or a tri tricuspid regurgitation murmur. Hmm. Probably the last thing that we'll touch on here is um, the muff muffled heart sound. So when the heart sounds are really soft, and you have that when you have pericardial or pleural effusions, but also dogs that are overweight, like there's a lot yeah. of fat just insulating the sound. Um, so that's some, something to be aware of as well, that sometimes your heart sounds are soft just because there's something blocking the transmission. Now determining heart rate is what I do every day. I'm good at that. <laughs> Might not be good at the determining, uh, murmurs or anything, but I'm good at determining <laughs> heart rate. Right. Well, you know, I was at a conference one time and it was an anesthesia session. Um, and this is actually before I got into cardiology, but I think the statement is very true. The, the speaker said that if you want to get good at hearing murmurs and other abnormal heart sounds, listen to a lot of normal dogs. Yes. Mm -hmm. And cats too, pre presumably, but that if yeah. you listen to normal, you know what normal sounds like? The yeah. abnormal will stand out to you and then you mm -hmm. can fig figure it out. Yeah. And, well, and I, I think that's, that's true with a lot of things in veterinary medicine. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> it's like, you know what normal heart rate is, you know what the normal rhythm sounds like, mm -hmm. you know what a normal EKG looks like, even though you may not be able to label it, you know what a normal fecal float looks like. I mean, I probably, I don't know if I still remember that, but <laughs> you know, or what a normal, no, there's not supposed to be like little it. round things with <laughs> walls on them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yep. So that's, and that's one of the hardest things is for your brain to start seeing what's normal because then so, the abnormal pops out. And I will give you the best piece of advice I ever got from my mentor and what he would tell people all the time was when you're faced with a bunch of things that seem kind of confusing is when you start your analysis, start with what you know. Mm 
Mm. Figure out what you know is true and then try to fit the rest, rest of it in. And so when you're talking about auscultation, what you know is there should be a lub and a dub in every patient. Mm-hmm. Right. If you can drown out all the other noises except for the lub and the dub and get their timing in your head and then mentally dial back in the other noises, you can usually figure out what you're listening to. Even if you can just say, it's a systolic murmur, I hear on the left, I'm gonna grade it a four. Mm. Even if you just get that far, you've made a huge leap. Yeah. Um, and you know, I forgot to mention this earlier, is that 95% of the murmurs you're gonna listen to are gonna be systolic. So if mm-hmm. you're not sure and you have to guess, if it's not continuous, it's probably systolic. Right. <laughs> That's just, you know, the realities of life. Yeah. Um, and then with heart rate, you know, you, you just count the heart rate. You want to know, is it high, low, or reasonable? And I use the term reasonable because if I have a 12-week-old Labrador retriever puppy bouncing off the walls and he has a heart rate at 140. Well, <laughs> technically, that's probably tachycardic, but it's appropriate for that patient at that time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. As opposed to that same puppy who, who comes in with vomiting and hemorrhagic diarrhea and has a heart, heart rate of 140. Well, maybe now we, we've got a diff, different scenario. Right. right, it's not reasonable for that pay. Well, it's probably reasonable because he's it, he's vol- volume depleted from all of his GI loss. Right, uh, <laughs> but you know that's I think that's a really good way to look at it. And you're also you know with you're doing heart rate. If you're listening to dogs with atrial fib- fibrillation, they're going to be tach- tachycardic. Mm. They're going to be high heart rate and they're going to be cha- chaotic. Um, if you have dogs that are going in and out of ventricular tach- tachycardia, you might be listening and their heart rate is normal. Then suddenly it ramps up to 220, 240 be- beats a minute. You're going to spot that and think, oh, you know, we, we need to investigate this more. So actually counting the heart rate is very u- useful. I think it's an underappreciated um, value some, sometimes, like taking mm. a temp. Mm-hmm. right it's almost always normal but when it's not you need to know right yeah <laughs> yeah it's part of our like routine physical yeah. exam like we get temperature pulse rate or heart rate respiratory rate yeah yeah because heart rate and the, pulse rate aren't always the same so we do try to make not, note of that too exactly and that's where that you know we talked about the pulse deficits early yeah um, you know that's exactly it so again you're listening for the heart you're palpating the pulses. Pulses are synchronous with the heart. It's great. Um, when I was working with the students at Ross, they would always present their cases to us prior to anesthesia. And they would say pulses were strong and synchronous. And I'm like, great. What does that mean? Right. And they never actually really thought about it until I asked them. And then there was a, a learning op- opportunity. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. That makes sense. Right. And it's not that they they were not prepared they just had never thought about it mm-hmm. right never thought what does it mean when it's not questions questions are the most powerful things on the planet and convinced of it 
Especially um, if you have a patient in front of you that you can relate it to. Absolutely. Sorry, we don't have that here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have many patients <laughs> that I can relate like heart stuff to other than my one from like last week or the week before that like had a very palpable thrill of just carrying the dog inside the hospital. I was like, this dog has a murmur. <laughs> like, You're like, a, ah. a wicked murmur. <laughs> yeah. And that's a great place to start. Now, you know, he's got a loud murmur. What does that mean? I don't know yet. We got to do some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right? it, was, it was pretty interesting though. Cause it came in for, I think like not eating well and like uh, dyspnea and they thought it was like a foreign body. Or uh, no, no, no. They thought it was um, like a liver mass because the, the dog had hepatomegaly from its severe heart disease. <laughs> right. And you're like, not it. Yeah, basically. We're like, go to cardiology ASAP. <laughs> well, and you know, what do you do? Okay, what if cardiology is not available? Well, you take some x-rays. Is he in heart failure? You know, we talked mm-hmm. about this mm-hmm. previously. Like, you know, I don't, think that it's appropriate for people to advocate care of their patients just because oh it's cardiac and I don't know enough about it actually you know more about it than than you think think Mm -hmm. you do yeah and you know all vets were trained in school to recognize heart failure Mm -hmm. yeah we determined the dog was in heart failure started meds because like they can't get into a cardiologist for several weeks so exactly yeah exactly you know so it it's not rocket sur- surgery it's just cardiology yeah it's just it's just, it's just cardiology <laughs> uh, i mean that's not to say you can't really screw things up but <laughs> i feel like with the heart you could <laughs> but you know here's the thing right they come in for d- dyspnea and you give them a dose of furosemide and then you take radiographs and it turns out they've got really bad pump pulmonary disease and they're not in heart failure mm-hmm. guess what you haven't hurt them that much it's yeah. one dose of furosemide yeah. and if they were in heart failure you might have saved their life yeah exactly exactly so so then we auscultate the heart we auscultate the lungs as well and i, I think most technicians are pretty good with um wheezes and mm-hmm. increased bron- bronchovesicular sounds and um, if their heart sounds are muffled because you've got a fusion, I think the thing that's worth talking about a little bit are crackles. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of veterinarians out there who say crackles equals water in the lungs. That's not actually true. Crackle mm-hmm. equal small airway disease. Now that small airway disease might be pulmonary edema and water in the lungs or it might be pulmonary fibrosis mm-hmm. or it might be pneumonia, mm-hmm. right? So, so I think that it's smart for us to realize that not all crackles equal pulmonary edema. And one of the easiest ways to tell is if you have fine crackles and a high heart rate, that's more consistent with congestive heart failure. If you have what's called coarse crackles and the heart weight is actually low, then that's more associated with pulmonary disease. Hmm. Actually, pulmonary disease is one of the things that can cause increased vagal tone and and bradycardia. Hmm. Oh, that makes sense. So 
I think that's something, particularly in internal medicine techs, that should be some something you guys are all over because you see enough patients with both that mm-hmm. it's it's <laughs> yeah. probably something you're 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 gonna see. Yeah. Um, and you know, and then of course you're gonna palpate the abdomen and hey, hope hopefully you don't find a horrible tumor and you know you're gonna look for the cats that have blown their back legs out and they're not using using them. Okay, they they're you know, pulseless and pale and yeah. they're in pain. Okay. We kind of all know that that means they probably threw a clot. And you know, while there are other reasons for throwing a clot, about 95% of the cats have heart, heart disease. So mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of where, where, where we are. And so, you know, that really kind of covers from stem to stern. You know, if you're palpating fluid in the abdomen, Heart disease is absolutely uh, a cause, but so is cancer, so is mm. hemoabdomen, so is uro abdomen. You know, mm. there's a lot of different causes. Um, certainly, you're going to get ascites with, you can get ascites with really severe pulmonary hy- hypertension, mm-hmm. as well as pill effusion. Yeah, yeah. So, I was going to say all the differential. Yeah, you got a little different list. It could be GI disease. It could be heart disease. It's the tip of the week. Here's my recommendation for people. Maybe this is you know the big take takeaway point is when you notice a finding on physical exam, don't try to create a list of diseases that cause that. It's I know that sounds really weird, but what's better is to say let's talk about ascites. My patient has ascites. Well, I know that pulmonary hypertension, or actually from a cardiovascular standpoint, ascites is related to elevated right-sided pressures. Mm-hmm. Then I can say, well, what kind of things cause elevated right-sided pressures? Pulmonary hypertension, pulmonic stenosis, car- uh, pericardial effusion. Do I have signs of those things? Well, no, I don't. Well, maybe it's just a hemoabdomen because he's a gold golden retriever right. he's poor goldens they always get the shaft on the differential uh. diagnosis list <laughs> and i'm like oh really man dad and never pick a dog up by the ab- abdomen oh yeah. oh yeah that is i was teaching a client the other day how to pick up their dog with a splenic mass and i was like please don't pick him up like this <laughs> yeah i love it it's um an enhancement of our physical exams in our patients. It is. It's an enhancement. Yeah. And I, and I really do. I like the idea. I mean, it's a great tip as well. Like I know we just gave one, but here's another one is listen to as many as you possibly can, especially the normal ones, because that'll make those abnormal ones like pop out in your head. Be like, wait, that that's something. And this is usually how it starts. It's something's not right. (laughs) And they're like, I don't know what it is. And then you talk to your doctor or you talk to somebody else and then you, they explain it to you and you go, Oh, that's what I'm hearing. Exactly. And then the next time you hear it, you know, you kind of go, Oh wait, that's this. And so that's kind of how you build on your, your skills. So I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Anything else we need to touch base on with when we're talking physical exam with the cardiology oh side of things (laughs) no i'm really looking forward to the rest of the series because i am learning a ton (laughs) the only thing i can say is what you read just reiterate what you said at the beginning yvonne which is 
everybody can do this. Yes. There's no reason that the technician can't do these things from a skill level point of view. Yeah. Um, you may not have time. You may have to do it after the doctor does, but it's well worth practicing practicing it's well worth spending a little time doing um the other there is one other tip that i didn't mention i'll just throw out there is take take your time when you're doing mm. your auscultation right so mm-hmm. I, the first thing i noticed when i started working in cardiology is that the doctors i'd worked for previously would listen to a heart for about 30 to 45 seconds right <laughs> cardiologists will listen two three four minutes mm-hmm you don't, you don't need to be in a rush unless you're in a rush for some other reason. Yeah. 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 Sure. Good tip. There, there, there you go. All sorts of tips in this episode. <laughs> I know. Thanks for having me on again. It is yeah. a huge honor to be part of the podcast for <laughs> X and internal medicine. Yeah. I enjoy it very yeah. much. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks. thanks for giving us your cardio knowledge and we, and we're excited because we still have more to come, which is awesome. <laughs> I know. I know. We're going to talk about diseases, like an actual, like, oh my gosh. Soon. Um, but I'm really happy that we threw this episode in there just because again, it's, it's helpful for me to put it with like your sounds and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of throw that into practice and, and see what I can, I want to get better at it. Yeah. So, well, and it's, it's funny, like for me, I definitely was taught this stuff in tech school but I still didn't know what normal was at that point. So like this stuff like no, totally yeah, exactly. goes over your head when you're in tech school. But then when you've been out in the field long enough and you've heard the normals and you've started to hear some of those abnormal things, it's like, it's a great reminder of, okay, now we're, now we're at like, we're at, at level one or two, let's go to level three, let's go to level four. And, you know, it's one yeah. thing I love about our profession is we can push ourselves to to, you know, step up our games just a little bit and creep up there. And yeah. before you know it, you're like, you're, you're like Ed and you have your BTS and cardio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, there is, there's a few steps along the way, but right. <laughs> just a few, just a few, just a few. <laughs> a few easy steps. No big deal. Um, all right, guys, we will wrap this up and then, um, we'll be back at you next week with, um, some more heart disease issues and heart disease talk. Um, I hope everybody has a good week. Stay well, stay healthy, get your listen on when it comes to listening to hearts. <laughs> right, because, <laughs> right. You get know, your stuff the soap on. <laughs> just always remember, if you don't know what you're doing, that the fool is the precursor to the master. Oh, that's yeah. a good one. I like it. That is a good Jordan one. Peter. <laughs> Nice. Thanks, guys. All right, guys. We will talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast. And make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.